Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Distributed Morphs. Today, we're talking with Dr. Mark Norris. Dr. Norris is an expert in Estonian linguistics and nominal concord. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, Mark, uh, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Um, so I want to just start off by uh, asking you to kind of fill us all in about what you're doing these days. Okay, good question. So um, for people who haven't met me before, they might not know that I was a faculty member at OU for five years, the University of Oklahoma. That's, yeah, the University of Oklahoma. Uh huh. And then I left uh, my position in June. And, uh, you know, we can just say that it was to be closer to family. Um, the reason that I left and uh, I moved to San Francisco uh, and took a few months off uh, to do a little bit of nothing and then started a job search. So I'm hoping to start a second career in the general natural language processing uh, realm. Uh, so far, everything I've looked at has been super interesting, feels connected to language, but in kind of a new way. And so that's fun. Uh, but I'm most interested in things like conversational design and natural language generation. But again, I'm sort of like, it's I got a long time to build a second career. So plenty of time for those things to change. Um, and so these days, I'm primarily a looker forward of employment, as I'm saying now, <laughs> just to, make my, to make myself laugh. <laughs> and then, yeah. uh, but I'm also still trying to find time to do linguistic uh, research, sort of my normal kind of thing. Um, and I plan to continue to do that uh, as basically until I'm no longer able. So whether that means I don't have time or the time I do have, I'd rather do other things. I'm not sure how much longer that's going to go. But right now, I still have some projects going on and I'm still motivated to find the answers to those projects. So I'm still working on stuff, too. I know an, uh, quite a number of, uh, for lack of a better term, industry linguists that um, are very much dedicated to still working on the projects that you know maybe don't advance them in quote unquote industry, but are very <laughs> yeah, much a part of their, a, very much a part of their life. For um, sure. I have, a, I have long, you know, and I've, I've worked with them. I've co-authored with them. Um, and I think That's it's really a, re rewarding, you know, so I, I hope that you soon are no longer a looker for of, of employment <laughs> and are a, a successful haver of, I mean, obviously yeah. right now, <laughs> yes. if you're listening to this, like years down the road, we're in the middle of uh, the 2020 COVID-19 crisis. Oh, my God. Uh, and uh, economic downturn and all sorts of other stuff going on. So this is like the worst time to be a looker for employment. So I, looker I wish you all the best that. in that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I know you're a, uh, a super talented guy. So I know something will come up for you. Well, thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about some of the the, the research that you uh, have done. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so you ha were working. Uh, you did a lot of stuff on nominal concord. Um, mm -hmm. And so for the for our the listeners that aren't really familiar with that, could you explain to us what what that is? What and what it, what it's all about? Yes, I'd be happy to. This is uh, my primary linguistic obsession. I would say. Um, <laughs> 
Nominal Concord is the name that I, and I didn't coin the term, but it's the term that I prefer to use, uh, that I use to refer to the familiar agreement process that is sometimes called agreement with the head noun. So a lot of people have studied some European language, some... um, Yeah, some like romance language where you have to learn the gender of the noun. And the reason you have to learn the gender of the noun is because you see it on the adjectives modifying the noun, stuff like that. So that is nominal concord, that agreement process, uh, which we see on adjectives, on demonstratives, on on cardinal numerals, on possessors in some languages, on other kinds of determiner-like things like quantifiers and the like. Um, And I wrote, I became obsessed with this in grad school and uh, then ultimately wrote my dissertation about nominal concord. And one of the things that, um, in Estonian in particular, and one of the things that came about as a result of the work I did on on Estonian was that, in fact, I think the traditional definition of, quote, agreement with the head noun, um, uh, end quote, is not actually the right way to think about concord um, because you have cases that I think uh, look like nominal concord. You'd want to say that they're nominal concord, but where the modifier does not in fact match any of the features of the noun. So to say that it's agreement with the noun seems a little bit obtuse. You know, if you have a nominative plural demonstrative and a noun that's singular and in another case, uh, there's a case in Estonian called partitive. So you have a nominative plural demonstrative and a partitive singular noun, to say that the demonstrative is agreeing with the noun in that case seems uh, obtuse to me. So that was one of the conclusions that I um, reached during my dissertation uh, working on Concord. And then in the years after that, uh, I've, you know, had luck in that a lot of people um, who are working on Concord have found my dissertation and have found it useful. So that continues to be something that people are leaning on. But I added to that theoretical interest in the past three years or so a typological project. So a lot of work on Concord has said, um, has looked to the Indo-European patterns as a sort of hallmark case for what Concord looks like. Oh, you know, it's gender and number and and case also like in the Germanic languages or the Slavic languages. And I sort of wondered, do we actually know that that's true? Uh, is it the case that this is how this normally looks or are these Indo-European languages sort of freaks in the world of Concord, to put it one way? And so I decided to mm-hmm. conduct a type, typological project to see what how common Concord is and what it looks like across the world's languages. And so the stuff connected to that project, um, which is sort of ongoing, but does have a finished version that I talked about at the LSA in 2019. That's sort of what occupies me right now is continuing to gather data for that and to think about theoretical implications of the results. Oh, very cool. So what kind of languages are you drawing from for this uh, for uh, for this typological uh, research? Like, uh, Yeah, just... just in general? Yeah. So just all I... over the place? Yeah, where, where, so I, where, where are you getting these languages from? Let me let me phrase it that way. Okay, good good question. So I started with um, a sample from Walls. Uh, you can download a 100 language and a 200 language sample from Walls. And I originally thought that these were carefully crafted samples to be super balanced. But then so I spoke. Uh, folks that may not be familiar with that, that's the World Atlas of uh, Linguistic Structure. 
Yes, W-A-L-S, no, just one L. And if you Google, or it's walls.info, you'll find this page. Lots of great linguistic info there. So you can pull a sample from them. Originally, I thought that was a super balanced sample. Then I was speaking with some typologists and found out that, in fact, you should remove some languages from that to be more balanced. And that is, so then I had this 174 language sample distributed across all um, major linguistic areas without too much overrepresentation of common families, trying to pull data from uh, a sort of a, as wide array as possible, give, given the fact that some of these languages are under-resourced, and so it's hard to find the kind of data that you're looking for. Very cool. Um, so this research that you've been doing, um, what is it, you know, on Nominal Concord, what is it kind of helped you learn about maybe your thoughts on the architecture of grammar? Mm. Like, has it changed the way that you think about the way, you know, uh, grammar is structured? Hmm. Um, I would, yeah, good question. Um, I would have to say it has changed the way that I think about things. Um, some of these things it changed like nine years ago, so <laughs> it's hard <laughs> yeah. to view them as a change, but it, right. it did. They were kind of a change. I'd say the most uh, controversial area of theoretical research connected to Concord has to do with the mechanisms used for agreement. So primarily okay. the, the connection between the minimalist operation agree and uh, what we descriptively know as agreement. Uh, so how tight is that connection? My personal beliefs are that there are... Um, certainly descriptive agreement processes that do not show the hallmark signs of the syntactic operation agree, uh, and potentially also reverse situations where we have a syntactic operation of agree, but no clear indication of um, morphological descriptive agreement. So I think there's a dissociation in both ways between those things, but that's controversial. There's lots of work on Concord, primarily work by, uh, I would say the most famous uh, work is by Vicki Karstens. On, she's been writing papers on Concord for, you know, almost two decades now and has sort of maintained the stance that this has to be an agree relation. And so uh, she and I disagree on that point. But um, so for me, uh, that's one thing that it has changed is that the syntactic relation agree is not sort of one-to-one with things that we would call um, agreement descriptively. And I can talk more about what kinds of things uh, sort of lead me to that belief if you like, but I'll just continue to... Oh, go no, ahead. No, please do. Please do. Okay. You know, if you have, yeah. a, if you have a, a relatively simple example... Sure. Uh, so here, fantastic. here are the two things that really stand out to me as um, different between Concord and the kinds of stuff we've seen with syntactic agree. So most... The most influential work with syntactic agree, I would say, would be like subject verb agreement, that kind of stuff. And um, so one thing that we basically that I have no examples of in the languages of the world are cases where an, an adjective modifying a noun where normally the adjective agrees with the noun. But if we're in a situation where the adjective has a complement, say in languages that allow things like uh, a proud of his son, farmer. English doesn't allow that. So of course it sounds terrible to us, but uh, it, many languages do. There's no language that I'm aware of where 
when the adjective has a complement, now it instead will agree with something that is with some of the features of that complement. And what we typically see from agree is that uh, it is it uh, prioritizes matching the features of something contained within its complement. And so that is one thing that makes me think that Concord is a little bit different. And in all cases that I know of, the adjective without fail will match the features of the noun that it modifies rather than anything that is uh, in its complement. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, Another case that I think is pretty telling involves um, what possessors are doing in the nominal phrase structure. So um, possessors, of course, come in with their own sets of gender, number, pers- and person features. And there is a widespread process across languages that's sometimes called possessor agreement, where a possessed noun will bear some sort of affix referencing the person and number of the possessor in a way that looks very similar to subject-verb agreement. Mm -hmm. But in languages that have concord systems, uh, you might expect that if the possessor is sort of in between the agreeing head, say a demonstrative, and the noun... You might expect that maybe the demonstrative that the possessor could disrupt that relationship somehow. There are countless case studies of subject verb agreement where if you stick something in between the verb and the subject, speaking loosely, if you stick something in between, it disrupts the relationship somehow. Um, And I am aware of only one case of what is putatively nominal concord where the possessor actually mucks it up in any way whatsoever. Usually the possessor is just completely ignored. The one case that I know of is Heidi Harley has a little squib, a little squib. I don't mean that in a dismissive way. It is a short squib and it's about Concord in Hyaki. And she's got some data that looks like um, the possessor is uh, disrupting the relationship. But that's the only case that I know of out of all of the languages of the world. And that is has really been one of the most fruitful domains of inquiry for subject verb agreement is this sort of disruption thing. And so I would think if Concord is also subject verb agreement or the same thing as subject verb agreement, we'd expect to see a lot more cases of this kind of disruption of the um, relationship. And maybe they're out there. That work just would need to be done. But that's kind of where I would push to try to um, figure out, you know, the figure out whether which sort of route one wants to take in the analysis of nominal Concord. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um um, and uh, can yeah, can I, I mention can I mention? Oh yeah, go uh, ahead. Go ahead. Okay, okay. So the other thing that I would that I'd want to say um, that Concord has probably changed about the way that I think about grammar has primarily to do with representations of features and relationships between them. Okay. So in a sort of um, uh, in a sort of what do I want to say? Like naive interpretation, one might say that in a language with grammatical gender, uh, you've got to have a noun that has a gender feature, or you've uh, got to have, in a language that has plural marking, you've got to have a plural feature. Um, and I would say in most work on in distributed morphology and in DM-friendly um, domains, uh that's sort of the way that things are taken. But in other theories of grammar, like in um, HPSG, also known as head-driven phrase structure grammar, um, in HPSG, 
certain features are separated into two types. They're called index types and concord types. And how they're supposed to work is the index is connects to the real world referent of the element and the concord connects to its morphological properties. And having these two sets of features allows for cases where, you know, in a language where the word for doctor is grammatically masculine, it looks like a masculine noun. But then when we use that word in the real world, and there are plenty of um, doctors who are not male identified, and so you would want to use, say, a a feminine pronoun to refer to them, that's what index and concord are sort of supposed to do. And different languages allow different things to happen with those. So in some languages, even though you're referring to a a masculine doctor or a, a, um, a female doctor, a female identified doctor, you have to use masculine agreement because that's what the language does. And maybe that's changing, but other languages sort of allow that more um, uh, freely. But I think that the necessity of separating the semantic, the features that have a semantic import and a grammatical reality, separating those two pieces out, I think the theory really has to allow that in some sophisticated way. And so something like the index um, slash Concord divide from HPSG uh, seems like something that the theory of that grammar has got to countenance in some way. Yeah. Um, and just to yeah. kind of build on that, like, you know, certainly, you know, I think another area where that uh, seems to have a, 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 a useful uh, uh, place that we can import that is, and I'm sure HPSG does this is, you know, the breakdown between index and uh, Concord is, you know, no language cares inherently about the gender of a table um, in Indeed. the same way. Um, like, you know, there's no, there, no one's ever like, oh no, that is the, that is the womanly table. Yes. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, that it's so, you know, I think there really is something fundamentally um, at a, at a core level about these, the the different representations of these features. Absolutely. Um, and, it, and, and it, yeah, I, I really do think that point is really well taken. Yeah. And then there's also some uh, data that actually, uh, or about the connection between gender and number, grammatical gender and grammatical number in languages that have it. That connection seems to be super, super tight. And I might have, I don't know that I had a fully formed opinion about this when I was in the green of my youth as a linguist, but, uh, I now do believe that there's a very tight connection between grammatical gender and grammatical number. And Concord has helped me to see that. There's been some other work too. So um, Zuzi Wombrandt has a short snippet where um, she is, observes that essentially there is, I believe the way that it goes is there are essentially no languages with a grammatical gender system. By that, I mean a high degree of arbitrariness there are no languages with a grammatical gender system that do not also have a plural system. And so there's something about, I mean, and not no, but let's say in the data on walls, there is one counterexample. She discusses it in the snippet. It's uh, arguable. So the conclusion is that there's a really tight connection. So there seems to be something there. um, And I don't know how that can be formalized, but it's definitely something that, um, working on Concord has helped to, you know, change my mind or at least shore up um, thoughts that I might have had. I mean, again, building uh, a little bit off of that, I mean, with some of the other guests I've previously talked about, like just one of the things that seems to be recurring for future 
research and for uh, uh, new research is questions about markedness. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be something that is showing up again uh, in our conversation here. Totally. Is, you know, maybe there's something really inherent about marked features uh, that shows up with, with gender and shows up with number and something kind of inherent about having cert, uh, those together um, uh, um, that may be playing a role. Yeah, it might be that, you know, you grammaticalize the number system and this sort of like gives the speakers um, scaffolding. It's sort of like, okay, I already have this morphology that I am dropping on everything at all, you know, all the time. And so then the gender system doesn't have to sort of construct this whole system on top of that in order to develop a grammatical gender system. It can just say, look, I'm already doing this with number. Let me just also start categorizing nouns. Um, in this particular way. I mean, that's a sort of, you know, I'm not a uh, person who studies language evolution, so don't quote me on any of this, but that's maybe the idea of how this might come about. Right. Well, I don't, I mean, I'm also not a person who studies a lot of language evolution, but I, <laughs> you know, I don't even think that that is necessarily an idea that would, uh, that, you know, I, I, I think that's a new idea. Ah, okay. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing I mean, if, if, if someone's listening and is, can say, no, this is, uh, you know, <laughs> this idea is out there. You guys are wrong. Uh, please <laughs> let me know. Send me an email. Love to hear it. Love to read it. I will, you know, let everyone know about it, but, um, yeah. uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, in, in the first episode, Heidi talked about the third factor issues that play into a lot of these. And I think that's also, right, right. you yeah. know, fundamentally that's where i i think a lot of this is going that's a good point um, and um uh yeah no uh brilliant stuff so i i just kind of want to close off and ask um to i mean and this is a big question but uh what advice do you have to you know young morphologists or novice morphologists that are just kind of stepping their toes into dis- distributed morphology um uh, well, first of all, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Uh, it's so fun to study language with a f- and morphology with a formal system. It's so nice to um, consider that morphology could be principled in some way. Uh, so, <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think one of my big key advice, pieces of advice, this is not just for morphologists, this is maybe for linguists in general, but the that piece of advice is you get to choose what your language focus is. So people often find a linguistic expertise through a field methods class. I've actually never taken a field methods class. We didn't have one at my undergrad institution. And when I was at Santa Cruz, uh, the field methods class was on hiatus. So um, I never had a field methods class. And so um, I ultimately just picked Estonian. Uh, and there's sort of a longer story about how that happened, but don't need to share it. I just picked Estonian. It took me about two years um, before I really started to feel like I was an expert. And then now it's been like 11, no, been like nine or 10 years since I've been working on the language. And uh, I just know so much about it. And there are two reasons why it's a good idea to pick a language focus. One is it allows you to find puzzles without trying to find puzzles. You'll just be looking at data or listening to speakers or reading a book or whatever, assuming you're also trying to become a speaker of your language, which was a, which is a good strategy as a linguist. 
Um, and then you'll stumble upon some data that you can't explain. And you start thinking, of, okay, I've been reading a lot about, let's say, subject verb agreement and how would this work? Uh, and so it gives you just a great source of data to study if you become intimately familiar with a language. And so I would say just if you're interested in one, pick it, start learning as much about it as you can. And the other reason that it's a good idea to do this is once you start trying to ma- uh, break out into the field as a morphologist, you really do want people to associate you with particular domains. And so one way that people can get to know you and your work is to know that you are studying some particular subfield or subtopic. So for me, that's nominal concord. Uh, Whenever people who have met me encounter concord, I think that they think of me and my work because I have sort of made it my brand, if you'll permit me just to use that term, but it is. And then the other thing is Estonian. So anytime a paper talks about Estonian, I sometimes get people who text me to say, hey, I was reading about Estonian the other day and I thought of you. And it's not just a thing about like being known or whatever, but it helps you establish connections. It, it helps you learn about work that you might not know about. And it helps um, just to kind of... Uh, build your community of other linguists and scholars. And so that's my sort of primary piece of advice is the theory is great and we all love um, using linguistic theory and I love distributed morphology. I just find it so enjoyable to um, analyze data within this framework, but it's also been so helpful to me to have a language expertise and um, you just get to pick. You don't have to have a principled reason. You can just say, I want to work on... Uh, Udmurt. And if you want to work on Udmurt, then there you go. Start reading as much as you can about Udmurt. That's great advice. All right, Mark, I really want to thank you for uh, taking some uh, time out of your day to uh, talk with us today. Yeah. Um, and uh, I hope that you uh, uh, continue to be healthy and uh, I wish you, you all the luck you in uh, the uh, 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 uh I forget how you phrased it uh, to start looking the podcast. For, in the looking foring of employment. <laughs> the looking foring of employment. Yes. The true morphologi- uh, morphologist way of phrasing that. Uh, Completely grammatical. Yes. Um, but uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for the offer, Jeff. I love that you're doing the podcast and uh, I hope you stay healthy too. Yep. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. I know. Thank you again to Mark for joining us today. Uh, As I noted in our last episode, we will uh, continue to have a somewhat irregular schedule of production. Um, So just keep a lookout for new episodes. Uh, We do have several more episodes scheduled uh, for next week, but uh, a lot is sort of indeterminable uh, at this time, given the ongoing COVID crisis. Again, thank you for listening, and I do hope you join us next time.